We're into our sermon time this morning. Take your copy of God's Holy Word and make your way to Colossians chapter 3. <coughs> the third chapter of Colossians this morning. You do know, I'm sure, but I like to remind you on occasion that the chapters and verses are not inspired. Those were put in much later. This thing was written like you would write a hand letter. There were no chapter one, two, and three. That came way, way in fairly recent history. And we did that so I could say turn to chapter number three, <laughs> right? Aren't you glad? I have a Bible that uh, David Burchell, my friend, bought me. Um, it was one of the few things in my bedroom that survived the fire. And it's a, it's a Bible without chapters and verses. And I love it. It's like reading a book. And it really reads like that when you're not distracted. But I say all that to say this, this shift into, into, into chapter 3, you know, sometimes we, we like a changing of the channel, but it's not. It's one complete flow of thought. I want to talk to you today about killing sin. Killing sin. And it's not me. It's the other Paul whom I'm named after. Uh, he is, this is in his flow of thought. To get the whole flow of thought, though, let's go back to chapter 3 and verse 1. And would you read along as I read aloud? If or since then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, for you died. And your current life, put in quotes there, your life currently is hidden with who? Christ in God. When Christ, our life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. That was last week's text. Now I plunge into this week's text. Verse 5, therefore, because this is true, because of this hiddenness in Christ and eventual appearance with him, therefore, because of this, put to death your members which are on the earth. And then he names those members. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now, see the shift? You once walked, but now. But now you yourselves are to put off all of these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Don't lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him where there is neither Jew nor Greek circumcised nor uncircumcised barbarian Scythian slave nor free but Christ is all and in all amen, amen. okay so I was kindly and gently informed last Sunday after service that I preached two messages, and it should have been one, or would have been better had it been one. Um, and I preached, I won't say who said that, but his initials are Paul Jettle Jr. 
I appreciated that truly. I, I really did. Because this week, I, I really wanted to, 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 to expose you to verses 5 through 11. And uh, nine hours into a 12-hour vigil over these texts, I heard my son's voice say, Dad, that was good two messages you preached today. <laughs> and I said, I, I, I'm not going to rush this. So we're, we're going to maybe get through verse 7. You with me? Puritan John Owen said, asked, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. And here it is. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. He added to that, quote, every unmortified sin will certainly do two things. One, it will weaken the soul and deprive it of its vigor. And two, it will darken the soul and deprive it of its comfort and peace. It will weaken the soul and deprive it of its vigor. It will darken the soul and deprive it of its comfort and peace. Be killing sin. Or it's going to kill you. You're either killing sin and executing it and cutting it out of your life, or it is executing and cutting the life of Christ out of you. Let me tell you to put your seatbelt on because we're in for a journey this morning. And oh, this is a message the body of Christ needs to hear. This is a message your pastor must hear. I need this. So let me do a quick review with you. Remember last week, the two messages you heard last week were empowered and implored. Let me remind you of our empowering, the, 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 the stance, the foundation from which we can pull off these commands in obedience, right? And they are this, our co-resurrection with Christ. Verse 1, since then you have been risen with Christ. Because you've been risen, because you've awakened with the Lord in his glorious resurrection on that first fruits morning. Because you're awake, go after the things where he is. And by the way, where he is, that's where you are. Isn't that great? Here's the second empowering, and this empowers the negative, the seek not, the set not was this, our co-crucifixion with Christ. Because he says in verse 3, because you died. And your current life now is what? Come on, church, verse 3. Your current life is what? Hidden with Christ and God. And because I am dead, because I died with Christ, that gives me the power to not set my mind, my attention, my focus on the things that are temporary and are going to burn up. You with me? So, that's the empowerment. But let me, let me remind you of the imploring or the commanding. The imploring or the commanding. This was last week. What does he say? Seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of the Father. Seek the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And that word seek, remember I told you, meant to strive, to fight for, to wrestle. 
But then the next one was set. In verse 2, set your mind. I like the old King James, set your affections. Whew, isn't that a good word? Set your affections, set your mind. Concentrate now. The struggles of strive and struggle to get up here, and once your, once your gaze is to Christ, concentrate on the things that are above. And because you died with Christ, you can let go of the things below. Set not your mind. Do not contrary. Do not focus on things that aren't going to last. Do you remember this from last week? If not, there's a great audio of it on Podbean and iTunes. Go find it. But did you know that it didn't stop there? There are more commands. It's not just seek, set, and set not. Let me give you the rest of them today. And we're only going to go through one. In verse 5, he says, slay. Slay the earthly members. In verse 8, he says, strip off the old man and his deeds. These are all commands. He said, this is what you do. And in verse 10, he says, suit up. Put on a new man who is renewed in knowledge. He's had a factory reset. Wear him. This has to be of the Lord because it all starts with S's. <laughs> Seek, set, set not, slay, strip off, and suit up. We're only going to get through that slay here. But the command here to mortify, that's, by the way, that's where we get the word mortician. Mortician deals with the dead. The command to mortify, to put to death, don't miss this, refers to the fruit that is, the, that is produced by the root of seeking, setting, and setting not. I, I want you to write that down and I want you to ponder this. I almost put in the notes there, Selah. Stop and think about that. Because the empowering comes from our death, burial, and awakening, our resurrection with Christ, right? You, right? And our identity, that's where we are now. We're hidden in Him. But there's something else that we will miss if we're not careful. This command, and we're commanded, what does Paul say? I mean, it's, it's so super clear. Right after he says that we're going to appear with Christ, he said, because that's a done deal, even though it's in the future, that's a done deal. Because of that, here's what you need to do now. Because of your our, our being hidden in Christ... <laughs> And that one day when he shows up, we're going to show up with him and we're going to be, we're going to be as he is. Amen? Amen? Because of that, here's what you need to be doing today. You need to be holding a public execution of some things that he calls your members. I'm going to get into that in a second. But I want, I want to unpack this. This command to put these things to death. Listen, listen. It's the fruit. The only way you can get to this point where you're ready just to ruthlessly, violently cut out some of these sins out of your life, listen, listen, is if you're operating out of the root of seeking, setting, and not setting. You with me? The more I seek the kingdom, the more I set my attention and my affections and my loves on the things that last for eternity, specifically Christ himself, the more, and, and the more I get my eyes off the world, see how this makes sense? The more I, I wake up to the fact that there's some stuff that's nagging me 
There are some sins that are chasing me and, and they're winning way too much and it's time to put those sins to death. Why? Because I'm here and this stuff down here is harassing me. Are you anybody with me this morning? So here's the next screen and it's a really great statement. Uh, and, and it's this thought. This is the cumulative effect of obedience. Fruit produces more fruit. I feel like you're not, I know you're writing. I'm sorry, I, I need to slow down. Whew. I'm excited. Jay, Jay's over here going, slow down, Pastor, take a breath. <laughs> Appreciate you, Jay. <laughs> oh, how many of you know, do, do you all, have you all experienced this? The cumulative effect of obedience? What, what do you mean, Paul? The more you obey, the more you want to obey. Has anybody experienced that? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Ooh, that tastes good. I want some more of that. I may have had thirds at dinner last night. You'll never know. I may have. Because I tasted that. I said, that's so good. I need to have that again. And I said, that's so, so good. I might need to have some more of that. That's the cumulative effect of obedience. When you taste and see that the Lord is good, you want more of that. And the more that I seek set and set not, the more I'm awakened to the fact that I got these things that are harassing me and, and pulling my gaze and affections from here to here. And it's time to do something about that. And that's what Paul is saying here. Now, it's kind of cool. It's not in your notes. You want to jot this down if you want to. Paul's now going to give us 15 examples in three lists. 15 and 3. Three lists, and they're lists of five. Um, ten are vices, with a bonus vice in verse 9, so he adds a sixth. And five are virtues to put on in verse 12. So ten are vices, five virtues. By the way, this was a very common uh, format of the day for philosophers and teachers. For some reason, the Greek philosophers and even the, the, the rabbis love lists of five. I'm not into numerology. Maybe there's a reason for that. But they love to give lists of five. So we're just going to examine the first list of the deadly ten vices. Isn't it interesting that there's ten commands and Paul's going to lay out ten vices? I wonder if there's a connection. So we're going to look at these verse 5 today, and then we're going to look at these five vices and then two motivations for their complete and ruthless annihilation in the life of a saint. Are you ready? Let's look at it. Colossians 3, 5. Get that up, and I want you to have something out to underline or whatever you do uh, in your Bible. By the way, you really should bring something that you can write in your Bible with or underline. Uh, my wife bought me some time ago these really cool, it's almost like a crayon, but it's way better. It's not so waxy. But you can, you can highlight your Bible and it, does, it will not bleed through. It's, I love them. She didn't like them. I think she bought them for herself, didn't like them, gave them to me. But I'll take it. <laughs> you can get those. They're, they're, they're excellent. I love them. Uh, but I want you to write some things down. Here we go. Therefore, because of our co-death and co-resurrection with Christ, uh, therefore put to death your members which are on the earth. And then he's going to tell you what those members are. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. 
Now, you've heard of the dirty dozen. These are the filthy five. <laughs> All right? These are the filthy five. By the way, whenever you see a therefore, find out what it's there for. So remember, empowerment is the theme. The Colossian heresy the, the, the Colot that, that was being pushed was this. They were pushing, these heretics were pushing empowerment by adding rules and regulations, mystical visions and experiences, harsh treatment of the body as ways to add to Christ and check it out, and empower, this was their thing, Every, all these things, if you jump through these hoops, it's going to give you more power and more presence of Christ. That garbage is still being sold to the church. Go watch TBN if you don't believe me. When you, when you have Jesus, he's all you need. You got it all. You couldn't handle more of Jesus. You got all of him you can handle. And what Paul is saying here, now what I want you to do, saints, is I want you to ensure that he's got all of you. And there are some things that are so intricately woven into your DNA, I'm going to call them your members. And those things, we need to have an amputation party. And Paul takes out the scalpel and says, like this spoon, here we go. From the root, this is so cool, from the root of our hiddenness in Christ comes the power or fruit to execute, execute or to amputate these filthy five. I love that. From the root of our hiddenness in Christ comes the power or the fruit to execute or to amputate these five vices. And they're all sexual in nature. All right? See, preacher, you can't talk about sex in church. The reason we're so messed up sexually is because we haven't been talking about it in church. That's the truth. I love this. There's a guy that, he's a Greek scholar. His, his last name is Mole. And he writes this about that little word, therefore. And it just, I about come out of my seat when I read the end of it. Listen to this. Because of the possession of a hidden life and its power, they were to put sin to death. Now here is no mere assertion of duty, but an implied assurance of power, the power of life, life welcomed and developed. Remember Christ who is our life appears. Now listen to this. So in nature, the rising sap of the tree makes the dead leaf fall. Did you see that? This is how, he said, this is how it works. The rising sap, the blood of the tree, when it awakens in the spring, it makes the dead leaf what? It pushes the dead leaf. I have a live oak. We have a live oak in our front yard. And it's the weirdest tree. It hang, any of y'all have a live oak? It holds its dead leaves until the new ones push them out. Yeah, so you think you're going to rake your lawn and then when springtime comes, it looks like fall in your yard. Because a live oak just is not going to let go of those. And they're, they're dead. They're graveyard dead. But they hang on. But oh, when that new life, when that sap rises in that tree and new life begins to form, what happens? The new life pushes those dead leaves off. Listen to me. Listen to me. 
That's stuff that he's calling your members are stone dead. And you need to account them to be so. And you need to let the new life of Jesus Christ push out the deadness of the old self. Amen. This is not hard to understand. You with me, Ben? I love that. The rising sap of the tree makes the dead leaf fall. Our rising in Christ, listen, is the execution of the members of the old man. The more I am filled with Christ, the less I have room to be filled with any of these, these lists of these filthy five. Now notice what he says. We are to put to, therefore, what does he say? Put to death. That's pretty strong, isn't it? It means to put an end to, to stop something that is going on, to stop utterly, to kill. It means to stop a state or activity, I love this, with lethal determination. You got it? Not just to say, stop and wait here. No, this is with lethal determination, conceived of as putting something to death. Well, what is Paul saying? You slay it. And you know, you make sure it's dead, dead. Lethal determination. Now, I know you say, well, preacher, put to death, slay, execute, amputate. These are, this is strong. Sounds extreme. It is. But that's because sin is an extreme situation. And specifically, sexual sins that involve the body. Sin defies God. And it defiles the person. And it destroys human relationships, especially the area of sexual sin. Would you agree? Totally mess up your relationship. And so the proper response to sin is not to treat it casually, but to kill it. You don't trick it. You don't train it. You don't tame it. You terminate it. You don't put it aside or put it in a drawer. You put it to death. No more option. Extreme problems require extreme solutions. Now, we're supposed to be merciful to sinners, but ruthless with sin. Amen? Sin is under a death sentence, and we are to take part in its execution. Paul says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs, whatever belongs to your earthly members. Now, the list here is interesting. It goes from very specific to general. From narrow to broad, from small to large, in one sense, the one gives birth to the next. And I want to be sure what you, what you hear me saying and what I, what I don't want you to hear me saying. What I am saying is that we do not mortify sin in order to gain favor with God. That's so important that you hear that. Are you all hearing that? We don't kill sin so God will love us more. We don't kill sin so God will like us, so God will bless us, so we can meet our mortgage payment. No. We don't kill sin in order to gain favor with God. God's favor must and already does rest upon us before we are able to mortify sin. It is the favor of God that gives you the ability, the empowerment to mortify sin. Amen? That's why Ebenezer Erskine once said this, quote, the Christian mortifies sin because he is at peace with God. The legalist mortifies sin in order to be at peace with God. And I know 
There's a few of you in here that aren't going to hear that today. Well, when I go out and I quit doing A, B, and C, or I, you know, I taper off my use of these filthy five, then, then I'm going to be right with God. <laughs> it's the being right with God that, that is the ground of this. And you'll notice that Paul does not speak in generalities here. He's going to get down to nitty-gritty. And in fact, he's going to get into the gutter with this stuff. And here's why. You never own up to the reality of sin that is, that is destroying you when you deal with your sin in generalities. It also destroys your fellowship with God. Are you with me? Don't deal with your... Don't, don't fall into this trap. Ben, when I was about your age, I used to do this. Dear Lord, forgive me for all my sins I did today. Amen. No, we need to get specific. Amen. We need to deal with sins very specifically. So, let's walk through it. What sin? Therefore, put to death with lethal intention, bring to a violent end your members which are on the earth. Now, I want, I want to make one statement before we get into this. When, when I was first reading this first, this is kind of what I do. So I'll read, some, I'll read the text, and I'll write, with, I won't look at anything but the Bible. I read it, and then I rewrite it. I, I write what I, a summary statement of what I think it's saying. And I want you to know, just want to be honest, I got this totally wrong. My first blush was way off. Because I read that when he says, put to death your members, I'm thinking of this. Right? There were 200, the, 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 the uh, rat, ancient rabbis said there were 248 members of the, of the human body. And they correlate with the 248 laws of the Torah. One law for each member. Well, Adam and Eve had one law, period, and they couldn't keep it. How are we going to keep 248? But that's how they, and I thought it was this, and it's not. But, he, but he's actually saying that these five deadly sins are so regularly practiced that it is as if they're these. Now, God, uh, Satan uses these and especially these and other things, members of our body, these members he's going to talk about, starting with fornication, uh, has, to, has to express itself through your body, right? So he's not saying that, but what he's saying is these, these are so much a part of who you were that if you're not careful, you'll let them be a part of who you are and they have no place with Christ. Are you with me? So let's look at that first one. It's fornication. It's the word pornea. Pornea. What's that sound like to you, church? You say, oh, I, can we say that in church? Pornea is where to get porn. We even, in the engine, we even shorten it, up, shorten it up and we're still using the Greek word. Now, now I want you to hear this. What is pornea? What is he saying? Fornication here. Uh, other, other, you might have a different version that says sexual immorality. What, what is that? It's a big word. It, it, it's, it's a broad term. And it is this. Any sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage, and unfortunately today we have to define that, between a man and a woman. By the way, that's the only marriage there is. I mean, and I'm not being... Do I hate homosexuals? No. No, I do not. But I'm telling you what, there is no such thing as same-gender marriage. You can call it what you want to. It's not marriage, not in God's eyes. In God's eyes, the only eyes that matter. 
But fornication, pornea. Paul says, look, here's the, here's the things that you've got to cut their throat out of your life. Any sexual activity outside of marriage. It's a general word. And it would include premarital sexual relations, extramarital sexual relations, homosexual relations, and even such things as pornography or lust. Paul says, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you, and this is interesting, this is the command, you all, and that's in the plural you, I find that interesting, you all must put these things, you need to bring a lethal, determinate end to any, listen to me, any sexual activity outside of marriage. Period. What's that mean, Paul? If, if you're not married, you are celibate. Period. End of story. And if you're not, verse 6 is for you. We'll get there in a minute. Look at 1 Corinthians 6.18. Jot that down. Flee sexual immorality. That's pornea. Run away from it. Why? Every sin that a man does, think about this, every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Why is that? What is it about sexual expression outside of marriage that is a sin against your body. Why does Paul say this? And what does it mean? I think what it means is that that act of sex is such a create creative, in other words, it has the ability to create bond, deep, uh, lasting bond that goes way beyond the physical and somehow gets into the immaterial. It, it knits your hearts together. And in Paul's day, this word pornea was specifically used primarily in its first definition is sex with a prostitute. And that's why Paul says in Corinthians, do you realize you're making Christ one with a prostitute when you become one with a prostitute? And you're sinning against what? Your own what, church? Body. Paul said, wake up to this. this. This is not okay. Don't do this. Because you unite yourself. Your hearts are knit. And then what happens? Then you rip yourself away from that person and go on to the next one. And you rip yourself away. And there's pieces, if you're not careful, there's pieces of you all over your community. And the result of that is you have no ability left to give yourself totally to the person that you might marry one day. Does that make sense? Sin against your own body. Here's his next word is impurity. This is a tough one. So when you have this, any kind of sexual expression outside of, outside of the bonds of marriage, God says it's unclean. It leaves you unclean. And it literally means filth, immorality, especially as dirty and impure in relation to sexual sin. Now, I want to just say right here, 
I'm conflicted. Because I grew up professional church kid, right? And the very little that we heard about sex in church, um, and the very little you hear about it at home, what you did hear is that it's a horrible, filthy, dirty thing outside of marriage. Don't do it. Then you get married and they say, okay, go have at it and enjoy. It's like, wait a minute, my whole life I've been told this is a horrible, dirty, filthy thing and now I'm supposed to go enjoy it. I think we need to have a balanced understanding of, of why it's important. I think we have a healthy understanding that this is a good thing. Matter of fact, this is a great thing. It is a gift of Almighty God akin to worship. It's as close, it's as close an analogy to worship as any human activity. And we need to be careful to, put a, to, to present to our children a balanced teaching on this. But for some reason, and I just find this interesting, that outside of the confines of marriage, that which is beautiful, creative, the ability to reproduce human beings is destructive and terrible and actually leaves you unclean and the idea of ceremonially unclean, unable to have a relationship. You can't go before God in that state. Sitting around the dinner table last night, I asked my adult children, both married and unmarried adult children, what is it about marriage that makes sex safe and encouraged and a beautiful good thing? And I had some of my, and I considered in my house, if they're 13 and above, they're an adult. That's a conversation I want to have with them. Why is it that outside of marriage, it's a destructive force? Inside of marriage, it's a constructive force. You ever thought about that? Why does it leave you impure outside of marriage and pure inside of marriage? Isn't that amazing? I know none of you want to look me in the eye right now. It's kind of funny if you can see what I'm seeing. <laughs> Back in the day, Angie was a little girl, and I don't even know if thankfully you weren't around when this happened. And her brother Clint, and her brother Joe and I found a, an old round of a World War II rifle that belonged to my grandfather. It was a live round. I don't even know what, it was, it was long. And Clint got the great idea Let's go take that and bang it between some rocks and see what happens. <laughs> Can I just tell you, nothing good comes from banging a live round between a couple of rocks. That thing went off. And the case, you know, there's, I'm going to give you a little, the casing, which is the thing that holds all the powder and, the, and all that stuff, uh, it went one way. And the one way it went was through the windshield of Uncle Dwayne's car. He was not amused. <laughs> we got a licking that day, let me tell you. And then the, the bullet itself went in the other direction, went through the window, through the newspaper that Uncle Dwayne was reading, six inches from his head, through the wall and out the back window. We got a prolonged licking. <laughs> uh, boy, Uncle Dwayne was mad. But you know what? Even without that spanking, you'd have never had to ever tell me again, that's a bad idea. I mean, truthfully, God watches over uh, fools and children, and we were both. If he didn't, we just wouldn't be here. But what is it about that 
You say, what's that got to do with sex? I think a lot. Because that same round, Grandpa Witham put in his rifle and, and was able to protect his fellow Red Cross workers in the Philippines by dispatching the enemy. That same bullet put in the right environment became a product of safety and liberation. You with me? So this is a spent, see it's empty, round, the 20 gauge shotgun. This is my grandpa Witham's 20 gauge shotgun that he gave me on my 16th birthday. Spent round, so this is empty. Always treat firearm like it's loaded. You set this thing off outside of here, bad things happen. You put this inside and set it off, it becomes a tool to produce and actually puts food on your table or protects your family from someone who would do your family harm. What's the difference? Here's the difference. This steel at the back plate of these firing pins and this steel that makes the barrels, listen to me, are stronger, have more strength than the power located inside of the shell itself. Therefore, when that, when that spark is created and that gunpowder is detonated, instead of blowing up, it blows out for the purpose for which it was intended, to protect and to produce. Are you with me? Marriage, the covenant of marriage is stronger than the act of sex that unifies marriage. And inside of marriage, that sexual act serves to strengthen, to produce, and to protect the couple. Produce life and protect each other from unwarranted temptation. That's why Paul would go on to say, hey wife, your body doesn't belong to you, it belongs to your husband. And hey husband, your body doesn't belong to you, it belongs to your wife. And I've had couples sit in the office and say, preacher, how often should we have sex? And I say, as often as she wants to and as often as he wants to. And if he wants to and she doesn't want to, do it. And if she wants to and he doesn't want to, you do it. How often is that? Probably a lot more than it's happening. And I think that's sinful in a marriage. It's supposed to be celebrated because it protects and purifies and it produces life because marriage is stronger than that act. But that act outside of the covenant of marriage with nothing to surround it, with lifelong commitment, blows up and people get hurt. Is anybody with me this morning? And it happens all around us. Um, I could not even make this up. I was, I was working with a young lady. You know, it was the age of some of my kids. And we were on a death call, and uh, we were talking. How you doing? Good. You still dating your boyfriend? Yep, we moved in together. I said, really? And my reaction was such that 
and she was only like 19, 20 years old. She looked at me with a puzzled look. And she said, what? I said, you think that's a good idea? She says, you think it's not? I said, yeah, I think it's a bad idea. And then she said to me, she said, you mean to tell me you never had sex with your wife before you got married? I said, no. First time we had sex was on our honeymoon. And then she said that, honestly, she was incredulous. She said, how in the world did you know it was ever going to work? Here's how I knew. Because I trusted God that the covenant of marriage was stronger than that act. And then I went on to tell her, do you realize that by moving in with your boyfriend, that you have just increased the likelihood of your divorce by like 45%. Did you know that living together before marriage increases the likelihood of your divorce? It does not decrease the likelihood of your divorce. Why? Because sex before marriage leaves you impure and it, and it, and it causes division. It doesn't bring you together like it's designed. That's why it's a bad idea. And that's why for Christians, those who name the name of Christ, it's got to be, have its throat cut and surgically removed out of our lives. Then he goes on and uses the word passion, which is a strong feeling, it's a word for lust. A strong feeling or emotion, lustful passion, I like to call it strong desires gone bad. There's a screen for that. Strong desires gone bad. It's not always a bad word. Matter of fact, Jesus, when he finally gets to sit down with the disciples at the last Passover, he, he says there, I have strongly desired to have this Passover with you. It's the same word for passion. It's not always negative. But how many of you know it can turn negative real quick? Yeah? Passion. This strong desire, so strong that it turns negative. And look what that produces, evil desire, the next one, evil desire. And that's an inordinate, self-indulgent craving, and this is the important part, that displaces proper affection for God. When lust goes unchecked, a desire for what is forbidden arises. Evil desire. And boy, you don't have to give this much space for it to grow into something deadly in your life. That's why I urge my children as they become young adults, if you are not of the age and state where you are ready to be married, do not date. Cultural dating, I call it serial dating, is preparation for divorce. It is not preparation for lifelong commitment in marriage. And when you go and date somebody that when you are not financially or, or, or um, um, uh, mature enough, you're not ready to be married, qualified to be married. I'm thinking more of a male here. But the female too. If she's not of a place where she is mentally and, uh, and, and old enough to get married and like I'm ready to do that, and, and you're dating, I like what Vody Bauckham says. It says dating when you're uh, not ready and not qualified to be married is like going shopping with no money. You're either going to leave frustrated or you're going to take something that does not belong to you. And you don't need to leave frustrated. 
I have begged my children, don't do what I did. I grew up in a serial dating culture. Thankfully, I only had three or four or ten girlfriends. I don't remember. It wasn't a lot. It wasn't ten. It wasn't ten. It wasn't ten. But I'm going to tell you something. We, we, were, we did not have a physical relationship. But I'll tell you what, emotionally, part of my heart is stuck on that. And as a result, all of me couldn't be given to her because there's pieces of me left up there. And I tell young people, especially my own young people all the time, if I could go back in my life and change one thing, I would never date until I was ready within three months to be married. I would never do it. I would save my money. I would have had a lot more fun with my guy friends. And I would have enjoyed life a whole lot more than all the drama because God creates dating in order to get to marriage, in order to, to be able to have that physical expression and in a rather short succession. I believe in short engagements and long marriages. You say, preacher, how long should you be engaged? Just long enough to plan the wedding. If it's a simple wedding, two, three weeks is fine. Two, three months is okay. I wouldn't go past that. Don't fool around, and I mean it in every sense of the word. Because it's bad for you. When lust goes unchecked, that desire for what is forbidden arises. And that's why Paul said ruthless. You got to bring lethal determination. Reminds me of the story of the young Indian brave was out hunting for game for his village. It was cold October morning. Stepped over a log and looked down and there a, a small baby rattlesnake was curled up. But because it was so cold and snakes are cold blooded it wasn't able to move quickly. He raised his war club to kill it, and the snake spoke to him. This is an old story the Indians would tell in her camp. And the snake said, Oh, don't kill me. I'm just a baby. I'm freezing. Don't kill me. Instead, I, I, I promise, if you'll just not kill me, and if you'll, if you'll hold me and warm me up, I will never bite you. I'll be grateful. I'll never hurt you. And the young brave, not having lived much life, took pity on the coiled, frozen viper and tucked him between his buckskin shirt and his chest. Went about his hunting and on the way down the mountain to his village, he felt a small sting on his chest and he looked down and that snake's fangs were embedded all the way up into his chest and as the venom began to take its toll and the brave sank to his knees as he was dying he said but you, you told me you would never hurt me if I helped you if I let you in and warmed you up to which the young rattlesnake replied you knew what I was when you picked me up you knew what I was when you picked me up Brothers and sisters, you know what sexual sin is when you pick it up. It will never be kind to you. It will always bite you, and it will always end in death. I don't care how old you are. I can't believe how many old people are living together. We've lost our collective minds. 
Then this last one is interesting. It's the only one with a, a relative clause in it, or an explanatory clause. The last one is covetousness. If you look at the end of verse 5, I'll read the whole thing. It says, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which, here's an explanation, which is idolatry in case you don't make the connection is kind of what Paul's saying. Now, what does it mean to covet? Kind of up there on the screen. It's the excessive and immoderate desire for acquiring more and more. You say, what's this, what's this got to do with sexual sin? Why is covetousness in this list of sexual sin? Really? Where does sexual sin come from? Wanting something that doesn't belong to you. Covetousness is taking or even just desiring something that isn't yours. And if, if there is not a ring on her fingers, fellas, she's not yours. You with me? And that's where it starts. She doesn't belong to you. And you have no business playing like she does. He said, I don't like this message. I don't care. This is what God says you need to hear. This will save you. This will make your sex life inside of marriage glorious and the opposite will constantly be a barrier between you and your future spouse or your current spouse. I'm just saying, listen, listen, especially you young people who aren't married yet. God isn't keeping sex from you. He's saving sex for you. He wants you to have a great marriage and a great physical relationship inside a marriage. And he knows that the, the way that happens to the fullest extent is if you do what he says. And if the life of Jesus is so abundant in you, it pushes out the death of the old dead man. And then he goes on to say, uh, it's the excessive and, and immoderate desire for acquiring more and more, a strong movement of desire towards something, listen to this, that is out of God's will at the time. That's what I mean. God is keeping sex for you, not from you. And that's got to be your mindset. It's not something he's keeping me from is something he's saving me for. And it's going to be better if I amputate those sins and make them no longer my member, no longer a part of me. Then he says, that's idolatry, by the way. He wants to make sure you get that connection. Covetousness is idolatry. And what is idolatry? It's the worship of self in the place of God. Pornography, who you worshiping? You're worshiping you. Running those scenarios in your mind, undressing every woman you see, you're running scenarios to the worship of yourself instead of God. It's idolatry. It's the opposite of having no other gods before me. You know, the biggest God that you have before God is a God of you. And that's expressed oftentimes in our sexuality. So idolatry is the opposite of having no other gods before me. And immorality is a blatant disregard for the love of neighbor. And as we understand jurisdictional authority. Listen, that young woman, unmarried, is under the jurisdictional authority of her father. And having a physical relationship with her is violating the authority of her father and violating the, the uh, jurisdictional realm of her home. And it is violating the law of Almighty 
God. Let me give you two motivations for cutting these things ruthlessly out of your life. One is the coming wrath in verse 6, and the other is the current past in verse 7. Look at verse number 6. Because of these things, what things? That list of the filthy five there, right? Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience. You know what he's saying there? I mean, it's pretty plain. But there's a secondary definition he's given there, and I'm not comfortable with it. Here's what he's saying. If that's your lifestyle, it's, oh, no, I'm married. Listen, more married men are, are messed up with the filthy five than single men today. I'm, I'm convinced of that. So don't, don't say, oh, I got a ring, I'm cool. No, you're not. And women, too. I can't believe it. Wes, I read something the other day. The percentage of women that are addicted to pornography. Now, that, that blows my mind. I don't get that, and, and, and I don't want to get that, but that just blows my mind. I don't understand it. I had a young brother ask me recently, is it, is it wrong for my wife and I to watch pornography? And he was totally serious. I'm like, yes! Burn that garbage! He said, well, let me, I'll just give it to you. No, I don't even want it. No, don't give it to me. You burn it. <laughs> don't bring that to me. Cut his head off and get it out of your life and bleed it out and put it in a grave and leave it there. Why? Here's what he says. The wrath of God is coming on people who are defined by this lifestyle. He said, well, you know what? But, you know, he said, little Johnny said a prayer and he got baptized when he was five. Well, yeah, he's living with his girlfriend. But, you know, he's a Christian. No, he's not. He said, well, you know, he's, a, he's an adult. What can I say? You can go to him and say, this is what God's word said, and I'm afraid for your salvation. You need to cut this out of your life. This is not okay. You're ruining your future with that person, and you're ruining your, your present with God. But you know what we do? And I understand it. I have been there even as a parent. I don't like to admit that, but I have. And when one of my kids went south and were messing around and living in verse number five, you know what we tend to do? We tend to just do this. We tend to just pretend that we don't see it. Or say, well, you know what? He said a prayer when he was five and got baptized. No. Sons of disobedience, and they have the wrath of God. Love your kids more than that. Grab one to them today. Grab by the ankle and say, you got to change. This is not right. This is indicative of a heart that doesn't know Christ. And you're piling up the wrath of God against you because of this sin. And I am your parent and I am responsible for you before God. And you still are. And I've been there and I've blown that 
chapter. And only a merciful God has restored what the, the years of locusts have eaten in the life of that particular child. The wrath of God's coming. And then his current pass, and I'm done. Verse 7. Boy, this did not go any which way I expected it to. But look at verse 7. The wrath of God's coming on the sons of disobedience. That's a class of people. You know what that class of people is? People who don't know Jesus. We're sons of God, daughters of God. Or you're sons and daughters of disobedience. You're one or the other. Listen to me. You cannot be both. Stop comforting yourself with a lie. But then he says this current past in verse number 7, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. You know what he's saying? You were just like them. That's what God saved you out of. I've had Christian parents come and say, how can I tell my daughter to move out when I live with my husband before I got married? Because that's who you were. It's not who you are. Amen? In whom you once walked. You used to be vitally. These things were so much a part of your life that you thought they were literally as real as your hands, your eyes, and your ears. But be through the your death to these things with Christ and your awakening with Christ, they have been ruthlessly severed in your life. <laughs> and that was you, but it's not you now. And don't get mad at me. I mean, go read that thing for yourself. Tell me what it says. I want to close with this. Ephesians 5, 3. Ephesians 5, 3. Same guy, Paul. Writing to the Ephesian. He says this, but fornication, same word, pornea, and all uncleanness, the result of fornication, or covetousness. That, that list sound familiar to anybody, by the way? That's Paul's five. He, he repeats them several times. Fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness. What does it say? Say it with me. Let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. What's he saying? If you're a saint, that stuff isn't even fit to have any place in your life. Cut it Honestly, Jay, I was thinking about this. I still might figure out a way to do it. I really would like to meet. I really wanted to preach this just to the men, but for some reason the Lord wouldn't give me the green light on that. Because there's some stuff that I want to say to you much more specifically that I would never say with the daughters of Eve in the room. And I think, ladies, there's some things that you need to hear, not from me, but probably from my wife be really good for your ears in this area. Even if you're not married or if you're a widow or if you're single. 
young person who's not married yet, sex is not dirty and filthy, but it has such great power that it, will, it has the ability to destroy and to maim and harm outside of something stronger than itself, which is the covenant of marriage between God, a man, and a woman for a lifetime. And I beg you, don't let yourself off the hook on this one. Don't let your family off the hook on this one. You don't have that right. You need to have an execution today. And it needs to be these things that you thought were so much a part of you, you could never get rid of them. And you need to let the Holy Spirit give you the ability to slay those things and cut them out of your life. May God help us to be ruthless with ourselves. this area so that we can be fruitful on the backside of it. Amen? We can multiply. We can produce. We can protect one another. And it will aid us in the worship of God. Would you stand with me? I'm going to invite the team to come. We're going to sing our, our song of the month. But before I do, I want everyone to stand. <laughs> and some of you have never seen this in this church. But you're going to. There's an old-fashioned altar over here. And you might need to just come down and while they're singing, you might just need to come over here to this old-fashioned altar and spend some time with the Lord. Maybe it's not you. Maybe you need to pray for a child. Maybe, maybe you need to say, Lord, I was, this was so much a part of me and I, and before marriage and I brought this into my marriage. And I just want to cut it out. I want, to, I want that cut out of my life. And I want to be single-minded towards my spouse. Come tell him. It's not like nothing magical about coming up here. But there's something saying, hey, and it might not even be anything I talked about. You just want to get with God, and it's open. You come and do that. And I'm going to pray. Father, tough message, but a good one. I thank you. I thank you for how you design marriage and, and sex inside of marriage and the beauty of the children it produces, hopefully for you. I pray for our children, God, that they would get it. They would stop being so full of their own dumb ideas that are going to run them right into a ditch. But instead, trust you by trusting us. I pray for those who suffer under guilt today and have never let this thing go because of the cross. I pray for people who are just in the wrong thing and they're, and they're just practicing this fornication that is just destroying their walk with you, their intimacy. I pray that you would reclaim us for your glory. That you would give this body right here, these people, us, me, grant us the gift of true Holy Spirit generated repentance over sinful sexuality and a regular practice, more regular practice of righteous sexuality inside of our marriages. If you open our eyes to you, would you put the scalpel in our hands?
give us the courage to cut these five vices out by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. This place is open for you. Let's sing.